0: Good morning everybody. I told you what my therapist told me, right? My central motivating thrust is to gain a response from people. Good morning everybody. So much better. Well, what a great summer. I feel like we're in a store for just some really good things. Uh, Going on VBS starts tonight. That's going to be a lot of fun. Sitting on the front row with Susan and I is our new student minister, Daniel and Carly Mays. Why don't y'all clap? Because isn't that great? We're so excited about the future. You can't clap, Daniel. Don't clap for yourself. That shows a lack of humility. Carly didn't clap. They come to us. They're recent graduates of Mississippi College. They graduated, got married, went on their honeymoon to Greece. And while they were in Greece, I ate at Kiefer's. But he, they, I'm sure they want me to tell you that they're not highfalutin or anything. They had somebody they know that had a house over there and people pitched in and all that stuff to make that happen over there in Greece. But we're so excited about them. Topher got married. Oh, not. <laughs> Topher got engaged. <laughs> Emily Hood got engaged. Love is in the air. Topher's getting married September the 19th right here. Only a select few will be invited. Wedding gifts... Are appreciated by everybody. More announcements about that later. This morning, we're beginning a a new sermon series. It is not called Hard Questions. I will no longer take any of your questions in any medium, unless they're easy. We'll do easy questions. Who wrote the Bible? Who built the ark? Who crossed the Red Sea? It'll be scintillating. We'll do that sometime early fall. How about that? That'll balance everything out. We're starting a new series today called Songs. And this series could go anywhere, it seems like, right? Because there's a lot of different kinds of songs, a lot of different genres. There's easy listening and heavy metal. There's rock and reggae. There's indie pop and hip-hop. There's B.B. King's blues and there's Beethoven's Ninth ninth Symphony. Uh, There's rap, but which kind, right? There's East Coast, West Coast, Old School, Dirty South. There's country music traditional country music and today's country music. Traditional country music has best been described as the poetry of the common man, songs about coal mines and cotton fields, home life and honky-tonks. Today's today's country I describe as any song that has the word girl in it a minimum of 54 times. (laughs) Get in my truck, girl. We'll drive down the dirt road, girl. We lay down a blanket, girl. And we'll swim in the river, girl. There's songs about getting drunk on a plane and falling in love in the back of a cop car. Which I suppose if you get drunk on a plane, you would increase the chances of falling in love in a cop car. I'm not sure. There's songs in today's country about diamond rings and old bar stools. You know, there's, we all agree there's good songs and bad songs. If you've ever watched VH1, you'll see they have a great show called Awesomely Bad Songs. And there's been a lot of awesomely bad songs. On the top of my list is Billy Ray Cyrus's Achy Breaky Heart, Justin Bieber's uh, Baby Baby, and anything I've told you before from Florida Georgia Line. <laughs> and there are, there are good songs. We all know this, right? I mean, we're in Fondren, the arts community, music for the soul. I mean, I'm, I, I work around. I think everybody on our team, do y'all sing or play anything? Because everybody on our team is stacked with musical talent. But there's good songs. Aren't you glad for that? There are songs... That, that move us and inspire us and remind us. Songs that make us sing in the shower, whistle while we work, uh, bang it out on air guitar, turn it up in the car. There's just a lot of songs. And smack dab in the middle of our Bibles, there's an ancient anthology of 150 songs. And these songs uh, have inspired and comforted people through the years. Songs that have a a wide range of emotions fear anger love and lust nearness and betrayal vengeance and forgiveness and these these psalms we're going to look at uh, today and over the next uh, several weeks we're going to pinpoint certain passages in this book this largest book in the bible with the largest chapter psalm 119 about god's word we're going to start today with one word, the word blessed, because it's how the book of the Psalms starts. It says blessed. And I believe this. I believe that we're all, everybody, everybody in the room, everybody that you know, we're on a I want to be blessed quest. You you guys know what Google autocomplete is, right? If you were, I should should have saved my screenshot, but if you were to Google, uh, don't do it now but later, but if you Google uh, how to be, do you know what comes up? How to be. Smart, how to be saved is in the top five. How to be rich, how to be pretty, how to be a better husband. Notice, notice it's men who are... good. Guys, if you're Googling how to be a better husband, I think it's over anyway, right? <laughs> but the number one, the number one is how to be happy. They slipped it in. This pursuit of happiness was slipped into the American Declaration of Independence right there with life and liberty as an unalienable Right? The artist Drake, I think, says it best. I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. But I hadn't had a good time in a long time. There's something about this inalienable right of, of happiness that roadblocks us, that throws us off the pursuit, and that leaves us hollow, feeling very, very empty. And I want to talk to you this morning as we consider the word blessed, the first word in this, this book, in this series, that on our I want to be blessed quest, our desire to be happy, I think we miss it because, because we miss what's so foundational. And I'm convinced, resoundingly convinced, that what's most foundational is not so much happiness but meaning. Now we're a young church, we've had a a couple of deaths and we've had a hard week and we're talking to people about things that really really matter I think all the staff can agree that this past week we probably had more conversations about what doesn't matter and what really matters than maybe ever before and what I'm finding is that folks as they get older they're less concerned about happiness and they're more concerned about meaning. And I want to tell you something this morning kind of at the outset that really is, is it's worth the price of admission today. And it's the following. If you you pursue meaning, then you tend to get happiness thrown in. But if you pursue happiness, you don't get happiness or meaning. Psalm chapter 1, if you would turn there. I'm going to turn there as well. We'll have it on the screen. And it is... Uh, Right smack dab, as I've said, in the middle of the scripture. Psalm chapter 1. We're going to read these six verses in just a second. Psalm 1. Here's the word. Blessed. We're all on a I want to be blessed quest. Blessed Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which, that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Hebrew word for blessed there is ashray. And it's a word that can easily be translated to happiness. God, our God, is a happy God. Our God is full of happiness. Our God is full of joy. And our God wants you and I to experience that joy. Jesus to his closest followers in John 15 is recorded for us. He says that I teach you these things so that you might have joy and that your joy might be full. To the, to the crowd around him, he taught the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. And he started each and every line with, blessed, blessed. Happy is the man. Happy is the one who does the following. Happy is the one who is this type of person. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that this joy, this blessedness, this happiness, uh, it, sometimes it just comes upon us. Have you had an experience this week or recently where someone showed up or a check arrived in the mail or you got good news, it just splashed on you. It was just a welcome refreshment for you. Bam, there was joy right before you. But other times I'm convinced, it's why I love this book, and it teaches us and instructs us that happiness, that blessedness, that joy and gladness is many times over a discipline. It's something that we have to be concerted about. Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, some of those books in the Bible that we may think are more about laws and stuff and arbitrary ancient things, it says over and over that we ought to party. We ought to have festivals. It says, and these festivals, by the way, if you study biblical history, these festivals are not sedate quiet little tea parties The raucous events where the music is blaring and people are hugging and slapping and laughing and having a really good time and the scripture tells us over and over to celebrate the feast of the tabernacles the feast of passover the feast of unleavened bread the feast of the harvest over and over again there's parties that the scripture says because god is reminding his people that it's easy to grow weary That we're prone to let life beat us up and become very brutal to us. And what's the outcome? What's the effect? The hardening effect. That inwardly we can become just like concrete. And I'll say this backing up a little bit about the pursuit of happiness. When we're young, we think the following. When we're young, we think that happiness is inevitable. But for the old, we think happiness is unattainable. As I was writing this sermon, I thought, you know, just something came over me. And I can't even tell you. I don't even know how to express this. Even I am lost to words when I think about the reality that I see around me and the aging process. And I see so many who are losing hope, who who really do believe that happiness is unattainable. But compare that to kids. Compare that to these two kids. The one on the left is mine, and the other one is Cooper. His family are old Miss, so you got to say Cooper. Cooper. But Wesley and Cooper, uh, eight days ago, sold lemonade right over here. They just they rode their bikes to, to, to the street corner over here, and they set up a lemonade stand. I'm sure Cooper's mom helped them out with the production thereof. But nobody seemed to help them out with the commerce of it. They made $22.50 and then got on their bikes and rode to Brent's. They got a shake. And a burger and fry and a shake and a burger and fry. And the bill came out to $24. So they not only couldn't pay the full bill, they couldn't tip the waiter. But you know, if, if I were to do that, I'd be doing dishes, right? Wouldn't you? As an adult, I mean, if you, come, if you come up short on the bill, you're doing dishes. Or falling in love in the back of a cop car or something, right? I bet I know these guys. I know one of them really, really well. And I'm telling you, what's in his heart is happiness is inevitable. They're hard to slow down on the happy train. They're they're young, they're wild, trust me, they're wild, they're carefree, and the world just stretches out before them with boundless, optimistic opportunities. Happiness is inevitable for them. But for us, you get to a certain age, and it just seems that happiness is unattainable. In Psalm chapter 1, it talks about the blessed life. Blessed is the one who does, who is the following kind of person. And it draws a contrast because in ancient Hebrew writing, that's what they did. They wrote, and there's a a compare and contrast. It's most abundantly seen in the wisdom literature, especially in the book of Proverbs, also in Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. But the Bible, the writers give us the twos and the not twos. It draws a contrast. You've heard many statements begin with there's two kinds of people in the world. And the psalmist here says there's two kinds of people in the world, the godly and the ungodly. The one that will be blessed and the one whose life will enclose upon them. The one whose soul will begin to shrivel. The one who, I'll preach it to you this morning, will face a judgment. It is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. But here I want to say to you this morning as I think and I consider all the Psalms. I do a a quick run in my mind of some of the beautiful writings of, of this 150 ancient anthology. I will tell you this, that it's not the pursuit of hedonistic pleasure itself that gets us into trouble. It's the rebellious, foolish idea that we don't go to the one source who can provide the blessed life for us. Psalm 16 and verse 11. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Last Friday, Teresa Kinsley passed away. We had her funeral right here on Tuesday. She's gone. Her body laid in a casket. Her soul has gone to be with Christ. Her family, as I understand it, most of them are now at the beach. The beach ain't bad, is it? But the beach you get sunburn, sand in your toes... got to put up with some hoodlums, probably some traffic. Your credit card bill goes really high. Some pleasure can be derived at the beach, wouldn't you agree? There's a little bit of joy there. But think of Teresa. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Yesterday, at about one o'clock, Our friend Jody Tidwell went home to be with the Lord. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. We need to give up on the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this way of pursuing happiness. And go to the the source of happiness. I want to give you two things from Psalm 1 that reflect a misguided way to get happiness. The first is the following. We'll put it up there for note takers. Let's go, well, yeah, back to that. Meaning, when I invest most deeply in what matters most, I I come to the place in my life where I say, you know, I don't want to have a lame marriage. I don't want to be a dad that my kids can't respect. I don't want to be a pastor that lacks integrity. I don't want to live my life pursuing the wrong thing. And contrasting happiness with meaning as we are all on the I want to be blessed quest. It's meaning that God draws us to. To the source of it all. Meaning derives when I invest most deeply in what matters most. Let me say this now about Psalm, in the Psalms here. Happiness is not tied to your circumstances. Look down at verse 3 and circle the word. If it's your Bible, if it's our Bible, don't circle the word. But circle the word "season." And that's the the Bible's idea. It talks about seasons a lot. We we preached in the fall when we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a, a time for this, a time for this, a time for this, a time for this. He goes drawing the contrast. There's seasons. And the scripture talks about different kinds of seasons. And here the psalmist is saying that we're talking about a happiness, meaning, blessedness, joy that runs deep. It goes really, really deep. In fact, today, there's part of me that thought this morning as I was praying about today, do you really want to preach a sermon on happiness when there's so much sadness around us? When there's so much pain and evil and suffering in the world? But here's what I believe Christ would say to us today. Suffering and pain and evil, it can touch your circumstantial happiness. But it can't lay a hand on your meaning. And here are the seasons. Think about seasons of life. I'll be quick here but think about spring or summer. It's a season where trees are blossoming and flowers are blooming and it's it's a time for a hammock in the shade with some country time lemonade... or baseball at Wrigley Field... or watermelons and swimming and just a lot of fun. That's a summer season. That's a good season. And wouldn't, you, wouldn't we all agree that we can be happy? All of us can be happy in a, in a spring or summer season... when those things are happening. But the Bible also teaches about a, a winter season. It's a season of sub-freezing temperatures, of hypothermia. It's a season when you just hide out inside... when you munch more and mope more... And you walk around in those funny animal slippers with a NyQuil hangover because it's winter season. And there's a season of drought that the Bible talks about. That if you continue reading the Psalms, you'll learn about that. But a season of drought, you can just think about a dry, arid time. A hot place. A place where your thirst is not quenched. Where your needs are not met. Where refreshment is nowhere in sight. I was reading this week a little bit of psychology. I learned an acronym, a three-letter word here, IFD. And psychologists believe this is the natural path for humanity if we're not careful, especially in a social media world. Idealization. And that's when you say, that's when you just expect everything. We idealize things in an age of reality television where there's makeovers for our homes and makeovers for our bodies. And we watch reality shows where a camera follows somebody along with a nutritionist and a personal trainer. And then they bring in a plastic surgeon who has very impressive surgical and Hollywood credentials. And they lift the eyes and lower the age and lipo somebody into skinny jeans all in one episode. And you're at home watching that. In your husky jeans, eating Doritos, right? (laughs) And you wonder, where's my happiness? And you struggle. You struggle with idealization. And idealization, every single time, it's crippling marriages, by the way. But idealization leads to frustration every time. And frustration, when it runs amok, psychologists say the natural path is to despair. Your happiness can't be tied to your circumstances. The second thing I'll say to you, I'm going to use the word anchor. You won't be happy when you have no anchor outside of yourself. In verse 4, the psalmist talks about the chaff. And he contrasts that with the tree. The chaff is the outward covering of grain or seed. The idea there is it's quickly blown away. It's lightweight. Have you ever felt that way about your life, about your own happiness? Man, you were really happy. There was this thing that happened. Joy burst on the scene. But it was all tied to a circumstance. And then you found later, painfully, you found later that that led to frustration and to despair because you found out that it was like chaff. Contrast, I'm going to switch metaphors, but it's a similar idea. But contrast the tree with tumbleweed. What is a tumbleweed? A tumbleweed is a rootless tree. In verse 4, I believe, and I believe what the psalmist does, he says, your life can be like a tree, a flourishing tree planted by streams of living water. A tree that is firmly rooted, planted, established. It's strong, stable, and sturdy. That can be a tree. Providing shade and respite for people. Refreshment for others. Growth. Producing and cr- contributing to the world around you. But a tumbleweed is a tree... Without a root. And I believe the psalmist is attacking a myth that many of us believe. That is that happiness is in freedom. Happiness is, is in freedom. It's, at, it's being at no one's beck and call. It's being free to have a ball. It's the don't fence me in. I want to be free as the wind. philosophy. Trust me, I know all about it. But freedom, the psalmist would say or happiness, rather, is not found in doing whatever you want to whenever you want to. Do you know anybody that's got that privilege now? Folks who study retirement say that when someone retires, generally speaking, they're very, very happy. But the happiness is temporary. Depending on the person, contingent upon the circumstances, the happiness lasts somewhere around a month or two, maybe six months to a year. But what's left They're they're wanting meaning because they're wanting to contribute. Have you noticed that everybody is created to give? A tree is created to give life. But a tree, in order to give life, has to be firmly rooted and planted and established, strong, sturdy, and stable, not like the tumbleweed. The blessed life, and everyone on the I want to be blessed quest needs to hear this today. The blessed life is not one of unmitigated freedom. The blessed life is when you have someone that you answer to. Let me be clear, that person is not sitting next to you. You look up to see the person that you're accountable to. The psalmist talks about this whole idea. And I would say to you as we round toward home, how can we be blessed? If if happiness and blessing is not tied to our circumstances, if if we don't have the right anchor, we miss it. But then how can we be blessed? The psalmist gives us a couple things. Right in verse 1 when he says, look down if you have your Bibles open. He says what? Blessed is the man who what? Who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. If you have a Bible that you're circling and marking in, I would simply write the word friends right there. Because your friends are your future. Sermons might at times inspire you. But it's community that shapes you. Y'all remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? He played a fictional FedEx employee named Chuck Nolan. And on a flight where they were delivering packages, the plane goes down. And Chuck Nolan is marooned on this island for, we later learned for four years. And he learns to make a living. He makes it those four years because he scrounges around for things to, to eat and the ways and means in which he can live. And he's also assisted in some part by a few past packages that survive, that float ashore. And it's easy to think that this movie is about mankind's heroic struggle to survive or the power of love to overcome all obstacles. But not long ago I was reading about the writer of the movie. And he was actually, as he was writing this movie, he had no idea it would be a blockbuster hit. had no idea if Tom Hanks would say yes. As he was writing it, he himself, to get into character, he went to an island off the Sea of Cortez. And on this island, guess what happened? A volleyball floated ashore. A volleyball that you probably know was manufactured by a company called Wilson. And he said such was the depth of his loneliness that he gave animation. He characterized and even attached, weirdly, emotions to athletic equipment. Interesting, isn't it, that the writer experienced what he parlayed unto the actor Tom Hanks in the movie. We all have a desire for a longing for belonging, a craving for community, a desire to be spiritually and deeply connected to other people. And the psalmist is saying happiness is not going to come to you if you walk in the counsel of the wicked, if you stand in the way of sinners, if you sit in the seat of scoffers. You've got to be careful who you hang out with. I'm well into my 40s always like it when you react like that's a surprise. But I'm well into my 40s and even I'm still learning this. A pastor in many ways can be insulated from life. There is what one writer calls the perils of professional Christianity. If you're not careful, everybody looks just like you. They all work for the church. And I've made an effort. I've learned a lot of this from my wife. I learned it when I worked with Campus Crusade for Christ for 13 years before I became a pastor. But to have a variety of friendships, that's really important. But I'm even being reminded today in a job, in a pursuit, in a calling that can have so much discouragement and so much criticism, to make sure that the people closest to me are positive, optimistic people who don't, as one writer says, live in the balcony where their dark, ugly old appliances are, where things are dirty and dingy where you keep the old appliances. But some the people who live on the balcony, they're cheerleading. They see the processional of life going. They get the big picture, and they're cheering for you. I, as a pastor, have to be careful not to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And I can't help but wonder how much more is that for you? How much more for our young people? How good it is to have a student pastor who will begin to shape and disciple a ministry in Fondren for our students to think about. How important are our friends? Can I say it again? Your friends are your future. A sermon might inspire you, but your community is what shapes you. So write the word friends right there in verse 1 for the blessed life. And then write the word, word, the word. The Bible tells us, Here we're told to meditate. Now what comes to your mind when you hear the word meditate? It's easy to think of monks with shaved heads. Not that there's anything wrong with monks and not that there's anything wrong with shaved heads. But it's easy for us to think that way. But can I tell you that meditation, you know this, right? We had... Dinner, we double dated Friday night with one of our dear friends who just got back from a trip to San Francisco. We were talking about the West Coast, the left coast, where the fruits and nuts live. And they were talking about how San Francisco is now the, it is now the most dog-friendly place in the country. And it also, I don't know if I injected in this a conversation Friday night, but I've also learned that it's the most meditative place in our country. People in an urban, cosmopolitan, sophisticated city are getting away from their hard-pressed consumeristic lifestyle to go on spiritual weekend retreats to do what? To meditate. Now, biblical meditation, it needs to be said, is different than Easter meditation or transcendental meditation or other forms. The biblical idea of meditation, the Bible would teach us, is not so much emptying your mind as filling your mind. Look at this beautiful passage in Isaiah. It gives us a picture. In fact, it uses the same Hebrew word that this passage in Psalm does. Do we have that idea of, there we go, as the lion or young lion growls over his prey. That's the same word usage for this idea of meditate. Now, how many of you have seen a lion or young lion growl over his prey? Like live. Paige, Susan, y'all went to Africa. Durden went hunting in Africa. You ever seen that live? Ever seen a lion? You probably hadn't, but how many of you have seen a dog on a bone, right? You've seen that dog, taste it, and turn it over, and there's, there's some really odd behavior, all right? I would act it out, but it'd be really strange, and you wouldn't come back next Sunday. But dogs do some really weird things with a bone, especially big dogs. And the idea is they turn it over and gnaw on it. You know what they're doing? It's the same word usage. They're meditating. I want to ask you, do you meditate? If I were to get a show of hands, do you Let's play the game now. Do you meditate? If you meditate, raise your right hand. Or any hand. I'll take anything. Any body part up in the air will be fine with me. Do you, do you meditate? Everyone should have, everyone should have their hand raised. Because if you worry, you meditate. If you turn something over and over and over in your mind again, you are a meditator and i'm learning it's a slow methodical painstaking meticulous process but i'm learning in meditation that this idea of worry which the Latin, the german expression of worry is choke out okay if you got we got some mma guys in the room but worry does that it chokes you out and then you tap out it constricts your life when you worry and you're considering every possible worst case scenario. You're sapping the joy out of your life. And if you live with others, the joy out of other people's lives. But this idea of meditation, you see, there's, there's, a, there's a negative meditation. It's called worry. And there's a positive meditation. And it's a biblical meditation. An invitation is issued for you and I. To turn the word of God over. In our lives. When I was 17 years old, a guy that I looked up to and admired, I'm telling you, he was the real deal. He showed me his flaws, he discipled me, he invested in me as a young person. And he told me, Robert, there's five ways you can get God's word in your life to live the blessed life. You can hear the word, you can read the word, you can study the word, you can memorize it, and you can meditate on it. And he was a catalyst in my life to begin that at 17 years old. And for 30 years, it's been up and down. The line has not always been a 45-degree angle up and to the right. It's been a jagged line. There have been times where this has seemed like medicine to me. There are times where this book has, I have greeted it with woeful neglect, where I haven't turned it like a dog in a bone or a lion over its prey. I've actually turned away from it. But for the most part, I've made it a regular practice to hear it. Because there's other good preachers out there. Or should I say there are good preachers out there. We need to hear the word. We need to learn to read the word. And that same guy in a small group later, we we learned how to read the word expectantly and reflectively. And it's a practice that I want to stand up here today and talking about happiness. and talking about a life like a tree that's firmly rooted, planted, established. Strong, sturdy. It's a practice I want to encourage you. It's a practice I I would encourage you to allow it to shape your life. To, To spend time in this Word. And to do so with friends who will help you understand. To meditate on it. Can I tell you I need the truth of God? I need it to give me peace. As a pastor of a church that's not quite four years old, that has a bright future, a lot that can derail us, a lot that can go wrong, leadership challenges, opportunities for the future. I need this book to guide me. And after all I've learned in this book, can I tell you, I want to know it better. There's still so much for me to learn. Later the psalmist will say in Psalm 19, write this down, don't look at it because you won't pay attention to me, but write Psalm 19, verse 7 to 11. Psalm 19, chapter 19, verses 7 to 11. And in that passage of scripture, just 18 chapters later, the writer of the Psalms, this particular writer of the Psalms would describe God's word. He uses words interchangeably like law, testimony, precept, commandments, fear. Now none of those words sound really good, do they? I don't know that I want law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear. But listen to the desired outcome. Because look, we're all selfish creatures. We're all on this I want to be happy quest. I want to be blessed quest. And we love outcomes, right? I mean, that's what you want. We're all here today. We just want the desired outcome. But listen to the desired outcome. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commands of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Can I say, those are outcomes that all of us desperately need. Do you want to play the game of church? Do you want to play the game of half-hearted Christian? One of my favorite preachers of all times, Charles Spurgeon, talks about the way to be miserable, the way to be the most miserable is just to have a little bit of God. That means you'll have so much world in you, you'll be miserable in the presence of God. That means you'll have just a little bit of God in you enough to make you miserable in this world. And the blessed life is one that grows. The blessed life is one that says, I want to look differently. I want to be godly. I want to be a life that God will bless. I don't want to tie my circumstances, my happiness to my circumstances that are so fleeting. I want to be anchored. I want something deeper in my life. This morning, Psalm 1 is an invitation for something deep. In your life. No one says I want a shallow life. But if you study the American religious landscape. And you delve a little deeper into our own hearts and in our minds. Shallowness seems to be reigning supreme. I pray. I pray for our church in this community. I pray that when people walk in. That people will actually feel something here. I pray that that we would be known less for our condemnation, our joylessness, and our judgmentalism. And we would be known more and more as a happy people. And it's okay, by the way, to say that in church. In fact, Jesus' condemnation came down on the Pharisees, those who had a grim existence, those who had a joyous religious duty. And the joy were the people who knew the depth of their sin. Who knew they were a mess. But knew that he was calling them out. And they had some hope that their lives could be different. I'm going to call our team up now as we close our service in taking communion. I'm going to ask that you would pray with me in just a moment. In fact, you could bow your heads now as we set the table to serve communion. To serve as a reminder of what Jesus taught us. This do in remembrance of me. The joy that we seek, the blessed life, is apart from our circumstances. And it's ultimately in a person. A person who takes great delight in you. Can I quote over you Psalm 149 and verse 4 that says, The Lord delights in His people. The one who calls you to take delight in Him and in His Word takes delight in you and who He's created you to be. Would you pray with me? Father, as we shuffle and move a little bit around the room, I pray that you would be honored in this as uh, leaders, servants take their place, and as we have a chance at a moment to stand up and to walk toward the elements. So ordinary, so earthy, just bread and juice. Representing a body broken, blood shed. A love freely offered and given. And it's on us to receive. And Lord, for some of us, I know it's been a dry and transactional thing. Lord, I pray that you give us a freshness. Let us entertain the possibility that we can move more and more away from circumstantial happiness and a life uh, less anchored into a life that's rooted in you. Less of negative meditation called worry. In more biblical meditation, we find that your law, that your precepts, your commandments, your testimonies revive our soul, enlighten our eyes, allow us to endure. Make wise the simple. And We are a people in desperate need of a Savior. In desperate need of cleansing and purity, of our eyes being enlightened, of our our souls being restored of greater, deeper thoughts of eternity and God to grieving families to the Kinsleys and to the Tidwells and to others that maybe only you know about I thank you that a sermon in the Bible rooted in scripture on happiness is just what the heart needs Because it's not a call to be sweet and syrupy and turn away from harsh realities. It's a summons to look at the seasons of life and to see how easily we can be swayed. And to take comfort, Lord, for these families, I pray that they would know the reality. That suffering can, it can touch circumstantial happiness. But it can't do a thing to meaning. Would you help us? Would you help husbands, fathers, mothers, wives, our students, grandparents, ministers? Would you help us invest, deeply invest in a life that matters? Receive our worship as we come to the table.